Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience in Berlin, and on the podcast we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. In this episode, we have two intrepid and enigmatic ladies of the arts. One is cloaked in uncertainty because she lived long ago, and the other because she wanted to be. It's no mystery, however, who is here with me today. It's Dead Lady Show co-founder Florian Dawson's. Nice to see you fresh off some world travels of your own. Hi there, Susan. It's great to be here. Our other co-founder, translator extraordinaire Katie Darbisher, will be starting us off in a recording from our intimate Dead Ladies Salon series. Yes, Katie will be talking about Afra Ben, a 17th century proto-feminist writer. Her popular plays, poems, and novels were funny, lusty, political, and as a result, very scandalous at the time. In fact, I've seen her described as the Restoration's very own combination of Dorothy Parker and Mae West. Indeed. Now, to Katie with the story of Afra Ben. Hello, thank you for coming. I'm going to tell you about Afra Ben who we can see here in a sketch from a Lost Portrait by George Schaff. Afra Ben was the first woman to earn her living from writing in English. There were other women who wrote before her and published before her, but most of them were nuns, or they also had, some of them had husbands to support them, and, and Afra was the first one who earned her living with writing. She wrote plays and poetry and novels, and she translated, so she did all the kinds of writing that exist in the world. Unfortunately, we don't know much about her because she was, she's written a long time ago. So she was probably born in 1640 under the name of Iafri or Afra Johnson in a small town of Canterbury in Kent in the south of England. Her father was probably a barber, which meant that he you know, got to meet a lot of people when he was shaving their beards off. And her mother was a wet nurse, which is like a nanny with added breastfeeding. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the background to the time. One thing you need to know is that we don't know anything about her childhood. One of the reasons is that rodents ate all the records in Canterbury. <laughs> Uh, but you need to know about the time in England. She was born in 1640, and in 1642, the uh, English Civil War broke out. Uh, you may not know that we had one, but we did. And it was uh, Puritans versus Royalists, so very strict Christians versus... Uh, uh, cool people? People who loved the king. Oh, yeah. uh, And they called themselves the Roundheads and the Cavaliers, the Cavaliers being the Royalists. In 1649, King Charles I was executed, and in 1653, a man called Oliver Cromwell was named Protector of England. Now I've got a familiar face to explain to you what happened. One measly civil war in the entire history of England, and I'm on the wrong bloody side. <laughs> Something wrong, sir? Yes, Baldwin, yes, there is. Don't you realise if the king dies, we royalists are doomed? We will enter a hideous age of Puritanism. They'll close all the theatres. Lace handkerchiefs for men will be illegal. <laughs> and I won't be able to find a friendly face to sit on this side of the line. 
If they so much as suspect our loyalties, our property will be forfeit and we'll be for the chop. There we are. That was Blackadder, the Cavalier years. And uh, you'll note uh, Mr. Blackadder has gorgeous cur long curly hair and lacy outfits, which we'll see a number of during the rest of the talk. You'll notice it was a very big fashion, the long curly hair. So moving on, in 1660, King Charles II returned to London. Here he is with, as I said, long curly hair and lacy <laughs> outfits. He's probably wearing about a ton of textiles here. Can you see? It's beautiful hair. Um, and even before he was crowned king in 1661, he opened two theatrical companies. As Blackadder said, they did actually close down the theatres and they banned Christmas. Um, uh, <laughs> it did actually happen. Um, uh, but Charles II made a very big change and he allowed women on the stage for the first time in England. Before that, uh, women's roles were played by boys. So the era was called the, the Restoration Era, and basically everyone went crazy in re reaction to years of Puritanism and uh, really had a very good time. Um, Afra Ben, as we'll find out, was a, a great royalist and really took part in this. But we're going to see the next thing we know about her after she was born in 1640 is from 1663, when she went to this place, Suriname. So Afra somehow got an education of sorts, we don't know how, and in 1663 almost certainly went to Suriname, which is here on the top part of South America there on the coast. At the time it was a, a private British colony, uh, English colony, belonged to a, a private man. There were about a thousand European settlers, 3,000 African slaves working on plantations, and of course the indigenous population. The slaves were growing sugar and tobacco, but they didn't export any tobacco because the colonists smoked it all themselves. <laughs> uh, you might have heard of, of Suriname in, in colonial history, in English history, it was quite important because the, the English exchanged it with uh, the Dutch in 1667 for the town of New Amsterdam, which became New York, yes. <laughs> We don't know why she went there. She may have been, uh, it may have been a good way to climb a social ladder. But actually, most likely, is that she was spying. Um, it was a time when there were spies everywhere. Uh, double agents, triple agents, spying, spies spying on each other. Uh, and, and there are certainly reports about her being there, uh, sent back to England by one of the spies who was there so we don't know um but she stayed for 18 months to two and a half years and brought back from there a feather headdress and a collection of dead butterflies um we know she was there because of this book uh i'm showing you a picture of the the french translation because the book was so successful that it was translated into various languages it was published in her later, later in her life in 1688, and it was called Orunoko in English. It was the story of a, a royal slave and a rebellion in Suriname, and, and the details are so correct about the time that she must have actually been there. And it tells us a lot about Afra late in her life. 
The story itself was probably borrowed and patched together out of memories, myths. Uh, there's a kind of Othello aspect. She's a, a very big Shakespeare fan and, and actual historical figures. The novel is created with developing the narrator's voice. It's very um, characteristic in the book. So the first half is set in Coromantian, which is present-day Ghana, and it's really, it's really pure Orientalism. It's clear she didn't go there. Um, there's a royal prince who's a warrior. We see his grandfather's harem. There are slaves captured, taken, given, and sold to traders. There's a love story, and Prince Orinoco is betrayed and enslaved. So the second half of the book is set in Suriname, and it is a political novel, but it's not actually, she wasn't actually anti-slavery. Um, Afaben was a great believer in social hierarchies, and she really valued what she called persons of quality, and thought that these hierarchies had to be maintained. What she objected to was, was a prince being a slave. Um, yeah. uh, she was a royalist, there you are. Uh, in the end of the story, uh, Orinoco rebels and is gruesomely tortured and murdered. I'm going to read you a little bit uh, out of the novel uh, where you can see that she really appreciated the male form but was very much a woman of her time. So this is the first time the narrator comes across Prince Orinoco. He came into the room and addressed himself to me and some other women with the best grace in the world. He was pretty tall, but of a shape the most exact that can be fancied. The most famous statuary could not form the figure of a man more admirably turned from head to foot. His face was not of that brown, rusty black which most of that nation are, but a perfect ebony or polished jet. His eyes were the most awful, as in awe-inspiring, that could be seen and very piercing, the white of them being like snow, as were his teeth. His nose was rising and Roman instead of African and flat. His mouth, the finest shaped that could be seen, far from those great turned lips which are so natural to the rest of the Negroes. <laughs> the whole proportion and air of his face was so noble and exactly formed that, baiting his colour, there was nothing in nature more beautiful, agreeable and handsome. There was no one grace wanting that bears the standard of true beauty. Nor did the perfections of his mind come short of those of his person, for his discourse was admirable upon almost any subject, and whoever had heard him speak would have been convinced of their errors that all fine wit is confined to the white men, especially to those of Christendom, and would have confessed that Orinoco was as capable even of reigning well and of governing as wisely, had as great a soul as politic maxims and was as sensible of power as any prince civilised in the most refined schools of humanity and learning or the most illustrious courts. So, she liked him. <laughs> Here we go, okay. Here we have a picture of um, Afra. She left Suriname in 1664, that much we do know. She was still called Afra Johnson when she left. And she possibly met Mr. Ben on the ship back to uh, England. It took nine weeks, so there wasn't much else to do. We don't know very much about him. He was possibly a Dutch or a German merchant. He may have been a slave trader. But uh, by 1666, he's gone. 
We don't know what happened to him. He probably died in the plague. Um, the next thing we do definitely know, though, is that Afra went to Flanders as a spy <laughs> to make contact with a man called William Scott. She'd met him in Suriname, and he was the lawyer. He was the son of a roundhead, so a, a Puritan, but he led a very cavalier lifestyle. He was on the run from a thousand pounds of debt, which was a huge amount. Great womanizer, sent his wife back from Suriname um, and the child. Uh, so Afra's job, she was recruited to persuade him to spy on the Dutch as a double agent. He was already spying for the Dutch on the English, and her job was to go and persuade him to by paying him money uh, to, to, to become a double agent. Now, either she wasn't very good at spying, or her spy masters didn't really trust her. Certainly they didn't pay her, uh, so she did get some intelligence out of him. The spy masters didn't believe him. The Dutch invaded England. Anyway, uh, she ran up these huge debts and uh, had to return to London in 1667. The painting here is from 1670 when her first play was staged. We don't know what happened in between. She was probably um, working at theatres, but she became a very prolific playwright. 19 of her plays were staged in 18 years, which is more than any other writer in London, male or female, at the time. She wrote for bread, as she said, which meant she, it was the way she made her living, and she followed basically what the audience wanted and what the actors could do. She often adapted older plays and stories under her own name. And the most famous and successful of those plays was The Rover from 1677. She worked with uh, this actress here, Elizabeth Barry. I'm going to just quickly move out of the way. The pose that Mrs. Elizabeth Barry is in tells us a little bit about actresses' position in society uh, in the 1670s. Um, yes, they were just a step up from prostitutes, but often uh, they were, there were rich men's uh, mistresses, and here you can see her holding a dove, exposing her breast, as you do. Um, maybe it was a warm day. <laughs> that robe looks quite warm as well. Anyway, so the rover had all the ingredients of restoration plays. Social comedy, masks, cross-dressing. Cross-dressing was very popular because now that the women were on stage, usually they would be wearing dresses, probably not exposing their bosoms. But when they were dressed as men, you could see their legs. Um, <gasps> their, the play has prostitutes, cavaliers. It has a feisty heroine, a handsome rake, and plenty of women of quality. It has a lot of vocal female characters. There's Helena, who doesn't want to be a nun, and her sister Florinda, who doesn't want to marry an old man. So they dress up as men and go to the carnival in Naples. <laughs> Adventures ensue. Elizabeth Barry here played Helena as a young woman, and in old, later years played the prostitute Angelica Bianca, who has the same initials as Ephraim. Now there were... A, ton of um, versions of the rover on YouTube, but I'm going to show you my favourite, which is two American schoolgirls who are exactly the right age for the characters and do exactly the right facial expressions. Here we go. What an impertinent thing is a young girl bred in a nunnery. How awful of questions. Prithee no more, Helena. I have told thee more than that understands already. The more is my grief. I would fain to know as much as you, which makes me so inquisitive. Nor is it enough to know you're a lover, unless you tell me, too, who tis you sigh for. When you are a lover, I'll think you fit for a secret of that nature. 
Um, so here's a portrait of her in 1650, no, 1675, sorry. We, don't, we know a little bit about Afro-Ben's private life. We know that she never married again, uh, but she did have a, a, quite a public relationship with a man called John Hoyle, who was a bisexual lawyer. Uh, there are letters between them where we know that he kept her at a distance and she wanted more. Um, Hoyle was murdered after a quarrel in 1692, but before that was described as an atheist, a sodomite professed, a corrupter of youth, and a blasphemer of Christ. He was probably a fun guy, right? <laughs> Afra was famous for her milk punch, which is really, takes about three days to make. I've never tried it, but it was also very popular with Benjamin Franklin and Queen Victoria. And she loved to go to taverns to eat, drink, and listen to music in company. Now, at the time, uh, coffee houses were all the fashion, but of course, women weren't allowed into coffee houses, so she did have to go to the pub. Um, she wrote poems, political and personal, suggesting that she actively enjoyed sex with men and at least fantasised about women. And she hung out with lawyers and libertines. I'm going to read you a little bit of a poem now. Uh, it was, it's called The Disappointment, and it was written after a boozy night based on uh, a poem by Ovid. And several other poets uh, on that same occasion did their own versions. But Afra gives us one from the woman's perspective. It's a story set in, in an ancient Greek Arcadian setting in which the shepherd Lysander meets the nymph Clovis one evening in a lone thicket made for love. And, and uh, I'm going to read it. It's quite difficult to understand, but I will do some hand gestures to help you. <laughs> Because, of course, it's old English. Well, not that old, but, you know. It's post-Shakespeare, but pre-everything else. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little bit of context. Yes, Lysander goes into this grove. Lovely maid persuades her to lie down. Right. He saw how at her length she lay. He saw her rising bosom bare. Her loose, thin robes through which appear a shape designed for love and play. Abandoned by her pride and shame, she does her softest joys dispense, offering her virgin innocence, a victim to love's sacred flame, while the o'er-ravished shepherd lies, unable to perform the sacrifice. <laughs> Ready to taste a thousand joys, the two transported hapless swain found the vast pleasure turned to pain, pleasure which too much love destroys. The willing garments by he laid, and heaven all opened to his view. Mad to possess himself, he threw on the defenceless lovely maid, but oh, what envious gods conspire to snatch his power, yet leave him the desire. Nature's support, without whose aid she can no human being give, itself now wants the art to live. Faintness its slackened nerves invade. In vain the enraged youth essayed to call its fleeting vigour back. No motion twill from motion take. Excess of love his love betrayed. In vain he toils, in vain commands. The insensible fell weeping in his hand. <laughs> Clovis, 
returning from the trance which love and soft desire had bred, her timorous hand she gently laid, or guided by design or chance, upon that fabulous Priapus, that potent god, as poets feign, but never did young shepherdess, gathering a fern upon the plain, more nimbly draw her fingers back, finding beneath the verdant leaves a snake. <sighs> then Cloris her fair hand withdrew, finding that god of her desires disarmed of all his awful fires, and cold as flowers bathed in the morning dew. Who can the nymph's confusion guess? The blood forsook the hinder place and strewed with blushes all her face, which both disdain and shame expressed. And from Lysander's arms she fled, leaving him fainting on the gloomy bed. <sighs> poor Clovis, poor Lysander, and as Aphra says, the nymph's resentments none but I can well imagine or condole. <laughs> I think, for its time, probably a quite a unique poem. Uh, yes, here we have an engraving of Aphrobin based on another lost portrait by John Riley, with which we've seen all three photo pictures that exist of her. We know about her later life that she moved on from writing plays to prose, like the novel Orinoco, probably hoping for a more stable form of income, but she drifted into poverty and illness. Uh, she got into debt. We, there are some begging letters surviving. But she began translating from French and Latin. Her contemporaries called her a harlot plagued by poverty poetry pox and said she was famous for her gout and guilt. We're going to see her grave now in Westminster Abbey, a very noble place to be buried. Um, she died in 1689, so she's probably about 49. The gravestone says, Here lies a proof that wit can never be defence enough against mortality. <laughs> Got to have a rhyme on your gravestone, right? Uh, she was still working up to her death and was keen on recognition. She wanted people to know that she had achieved a lot in her life. And she did what I always want to do when translating she added a little marginal note in the, in the printed copy of uh, Abraham Cowley's Latin poem, or her translation of the Latin poem, Six Books of Plants, on the margin of the entry on the laurel, so the, the plant of the, the famous wreaths, which is, I think, a fitting uh, testament. The translatress in her own person speaks. After the monarchs, poets claim a share, as the next worthy they prize wreaths to wear. Among that number, do not me disdain, me the most humble <laughs> of that glorious train. I buy a double right that I bounties claim, both from my sex and in Apollo's name. Let me with Sappho and Orinda be, O ever sacred nymph adorned by thee, and give my verses immortality. And those verses really did gain immortality, or certainly the plays. She was, obviously, she was vilified for several centuries because she wasn't virtuous enough as a woman writer. But she was rediscovered in the 20th century, partly by Virginia Woolf. And uh, she still read and performed on stages around the world. Last year, the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, staged uh, The Rover. 
And I discovered her, to my great delight, um, in my English class. My teachers in the 90s had us read the Rover and it was great fun. And I'm glad to have introduced her to all of you. Thanks very much. Katie Darbyshire on Afro Ben. You can find images of Afra, all the ones that Katie just talked about, plus a recipe for milk punch on our website, deadladyshow.com. Recently, I went to see the work of another rediscovered international lady of mystery, whose background, motivations, and expertise have all been debated, although she practiced her art in plain sight. At the opening, there were people lined up just to get inside the building. The rooms and staircases of Berlin's Willy Brandhaus were packed full. You could barely move, and it was a struggle to see the treasures encased behind the glass and frames. We were there to see the photography of Vivian Meyer. Now, maybe you've heard about her, the sometime nanny and lifetime photographer of prodigious talent who rarely printed and never showed her pictures, whose copious works were uncovered by the bargain hunters and collectors who purchased them unseen at auction shortly before her death in 2009. I fought my way through the crowd, which was busy gazing at beautifully composed black and white images of urban life, both ugly and sublime. Then I bumped into Nora Shazlin and Ira Rowena, who were discussing Vivian Meyer's cameras. For many years, she used a Roloflex, which you hold about waist level and look down to focus. It changes the perspective of photographer and subject. Nora told me her impressions of Vivian Meyer. She must have been a very confident person. Or just very likable. Maybe she approached her subjects too. I don't know. And then tell them, pose, we can't. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's pretty natural, right? <laughs> it's funny because for me, I, like, I get the feeling that she was very lonely. To me, a lot yeah. of these photos are very lonely. Maybe it's the black and white of it. Because people aren't, if they're looking at her, they're not engaging with her. She does a lot of reflections. She does a lot of windows, a lot of kind of... Yeah, I don't know. Oh, wow, yeah, but I, I get the opposite sense that I just feel like she's this free spirit, very confident of herself, very and when you take pictures of yourself, you must like yourself a lot. And um, it's just the same. It's like a, it's still a selfie, just in a different form. So yeah, I don't feel that she's a lonely person. No. <laughs> but which of us was right? She didn't like to talk about herself. She was not an open person. She was a closed person. Had she made herself known, she would have become a famous photographer. Something was wrong. There's a piece of the puzzle missing. She was mysterious. She said, don't ever open this door to her room. Reclusive, eccentric, private. That's the image of her that develops when you watch the not-quite-satisfying Oscar-nominated documentary called Finding Vivian Meyer. She was also smart, determined, caring, untrained yet well-read. She roamed the streets like a journalist, capturing the turbulent times in black and white, mastering light and shadow. She took snapshots of delicate rural French landscapes and their people, and she filmed in vivid color. Just as the images we've seen in exhibitions or online are only a portion of the photos and films Vivian Meyer took during her life, so too have her circumstances been edited even curate it. Although the collectors have physical possession of her work, they don't own the copyright, creating tricky questions about the stunning prints being shown around the world. And what's on view and what's been told is not only without her consent, it is appropriated through the viewfinder of the collector, not of the artist. 
Vivian Meyer was intrusive and also clandestine. She confronted people with her camera and also retreated behind it. Sometimes she told people she was a spy or gave a fake name or false spelling. She was poor yet traveled the world taking pictures. She was European and yet born in New York. Nannying gave her freedom and a roof over her head and busied her with the frustratingly mundane. The fight for the rights to her photos rages on between strangers who acquired Meyer's stuff for a pittance and potential heirs, extremely distant family, and covered through genealogical research. It's a story as naughty and complex as the woman herself, who probably have preferred to stay in the shadows. Call her a street photographer, an outsider artist, a lost and recovered treasure. But all this is how we define her not how she defined herself. Just call her Vivian Meyer. That's our show. The theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud, along with all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. Follow us at Dead Lady Show or drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. And we have another live show coming up uh, quite soon. Florian, tell us about it. Yes, it's on November 27th. It's going to be an all-English, all-Frankenstein edition. Uh, We're going to be talking about Mary Shelley, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, and Ada Lovelace, Lord Byron's illegitimate computer-inventing daughter. Um, It's going to be in Berlin at Akut. Please come. Excellent. And if you can't come along, you can always listen to it later on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, Google Play Music, and everywhere you like to listen. Thanks to Florian and to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. And I'm not. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) And you never will be. Mm.